Well, good morning to you. How are you? Hey, would you take a minute and go find somebody you don't know and say hi? Just go. Go. Talk to each other. All right, enough of this friendliness, you VRBCers. <laughs> That's great. I hope many people are invited to lunch or invited to the God Hears intensive or whatever. So deals were done in the last 30 seconds, I know. Hey, I'm excited to be here. I've been here a couple of times over the years, and uh, Larry and Jolita were good friends of mine. and. I've just gotten to know Pastor Amy and Pastor John, what wonderful shepherds through this process. Thank you so much for that. And um, I've, I just am so glad to be here today. So if you have a Bible or a device on you, turn to Genesis chapter 16. First book of the Bible, chapter 16. We're going to talk about someone that you may or may not know about, and her name is Hagar. So Hagar's story is about exile and meeting God in the midst of pain and abandonment. My mother, who was racked by mental illness, abandoned our family when I, her only daughter, was just 11 years old. Hagar's experience living in a foreign land with Sarai and Abram, you know them as Sarah and Abraham, their names are changed in Genesis 17, so they're pre-Genesis 17 names or Sarai, say it with me, Sarai, Sarai, and Abram, Abram. That's how we're going to say it today. Don't get all discombobulated. Same people, just shorter names, all right? Hagar's experience living in a foreign land with Sarai and Abram was agonizing and clarifying. Raised by my suddenly single father, along with my two brothers, we lived in a chaotic home. My father struggled with alcohol, and he grieved the loss of his wife, my mother. The instability of my family life was both wounding and quite maturing. Hagar survives and encounters God in the wilderness of her pain and abandonment. And in the midst of her struggle, Hagar receives God's blessing and his promises. In my family's brokenness, in the very midst of it, God rescued me, and I received his love and salvation. And Jesus, 53 years ago yesterday, that was my spiritual birthday, August 12, 1970. Who was not even born in 1970? Raise your hand and make me feel bad. Oh, yeah. All right, I'm going to need some help for depression afterwards. But 53 years, I can testify to God's blessing and faithfulness. Enough about me. Let's look at Hagar. But first, let's pray. Jesus, show us in this story how we can connect to who you really are and who we really are in you. Take away anything that is of my flesh, of my own intention, and let it drop to the ground. Leave only what is powerful, which is your word and your truth by your spirit, that is able to transform lives, to lift up 
the heavy-hearted, to heal the broken, to inspire and challenge us. Do that. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you? And pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, turn to Genesis 16. We're going to look at the first 16 verses, but first a little background. When you're reading the flow of Genesis, Genesis 16 seems like an, kind of an odd left turn. But you need to read the first 15 chapters and then read on, on 17 and on, which talk about Abram and Sarai, and then change to Abraham and Sarah in 17, to really understand why 16 is in there. So in Genesis 15, 4 and 5, God makes a promise to childless Abraham that he was going to have children as many as the stars in the sky that he could not count. So innumerable progeny to a childless guy. That's pretty stout. So he's making that promise to him. Here it goes. Genesis 15, 4 and 5. I'll just read it to you. Listen up. Your very own son will be your heir. Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you can number them, so shall your offspring be. That's the promise. Verse 6, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So he says, I'm going to put my trust in the God of that promise and in the promise itself. So God promises to grant innumerable children to an aging, childless, righteous man of faith. That's kind of like what God does, strange and wild things. And chapter 16 is a peek behind the tent flaps to see how what's happening at home, how is this promise going down post-promise giving in Gen Genesis 15. All right. Now, Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the verses will be on the screens. And I have highlighted certain things in yellow that I'm going to give some extra comment to once we have read the verse, so you can follow along with that. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not born any... Oh, yep, I'm in the right place, I'm sorry. Let me try that again. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now the name Abram means noble or exalted father, which is an unusual name for a guy who has no kids. And he's 85 years old at this time. And you think, well, that would answer why he probably doesn't have children. But of course, people are having children way late. In fact, Abraham has a son at age 100. Sarai means noble woman or princess. Perhaps you've heard the word, the name Sarah means princess. That's true. Sarai is the same. It means a noble or uh, woman um, or princess. She's 75 at the time. Again, physically incapable of having children. Hagar's name is interesting. It means flight or to wander. She certainly lives up to her name, as we'll see in a, middle, in a minute. And it's interesting that throughout this whole text, neither Abram nor Sarai ever mention Hagar's name. They always call her by her identity that they know, which is a slave, a handmaiden. They never say her name. And if there's one thing I know about God, he comes saying your name. God knows who you are. He knows how many hairs are in your head and how many were left in your comb this morning. That's our God. And then Sarai says, through her, I can build a family. What this means is that it's been a long wait. It's been 10 years now. Between Genesis 15 and Genesis 16, it's a decade. And they're waiting for the promise. 
And I don't know about you, but sometimes waiting is hard, isn't it? Raise your hand if waiting is hard for you. Oh, I'm in good company, right? You can't wait for this to be over, right? You hate even waiting. 20 more minutes, people, hang on. All right, so it's hard, right? Waiting is hard. Imagine getting a promise and wanting children so desperately. Many of you are sitting in here, maybe even online, thinking, I would want children, and it takes so long. When is that promise going to be fulfilled? So Sarah actually, Sarai believes the promise, but she says, maybe I can help God out. Anybody in here have been God's little helper? Right? This is what she's doing. I'm going to build a family through her, which actually was an accepted custom of the day, to take a handmaiden and give that handmaiden to your husband as a surrogate, and the baby would be considered yours. So she's doing something legal, but she's actually trying to do God's plan her way. Does that sound familiar to anybody in this place, right? I'm like, ding, 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 I've done that. And it would take the rest of my time to tell you all the times I've done that. You know you've probably done that as well. We take things into our own hands. And what usually happens when that happens? Good stuff? It usually is unanticipated negative consequences when we take matters into our own hands. Genesis 16, 3 and 4. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, there's her identity, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. That's the long wait. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she, Hagar, saw that she was pregnant, she, Sarai, became contemptible to her, Hagar. There's a lot to unwrap here, so let's walk through it. Notice the phrases or the verbs, took and gave. These are direct echoes from Genesis 3. When Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, you are meant to see that in this story. So it's a kind of a spoiler sin alert. Something bad is going to happen here because somebody took and gave. It's an echo of Genesis 3, and things don't go well there. But she took, uh, he took her as his wife, so her status would have been a bit elevated. And then he slept with her, she became pregnant. And when she became pregnant, when she felt the baby move, when she knew whatever the testing was or whatever the baby bump was, we don't know. Sarah was made little. That's what contemptible means. I think a lot of us have been taught that Hagar and Sarah are like, you know, it's um, WWE in the tent. You know, like they're beating each other up and their, you know, fur is flying and hair is being ripped out. It's not like that. What's happening here is Sarah is over top, more powerful than Hagar. When Hagar gets pregnant, she realizes she's having Abraham's favor. He's tending to her a little bit more, and she will have the baby that Sarah cannot have. And so in Hagar's eyes, Sarah has become diminished in her status. And I bet in her behavior, she probably didn't look her in the eye. She probably just went, <laughs> you know how women do. We have a way without words of saying, hell hath no fury like a woman's Scorn, right? Like, so we don't know all that was going on, but it probably wasn't like we've been told that Hagar was hateful and Sarah hated her. There was definitely tension in the tent. But Hagar's maternal pride was increasing with Abraham's attention, and Sarai's status was diminished by the very thing that she brought on herself. And so she probably likely feels regret. Verse 5, then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for my suffering 
Every man in here knows what it feels like to be blamed <laughs> for something, right? This is another echo of Genesis 3. What do Adam and Eve do when they first sin and they realize they're naked? They look at each other and they go, it's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. They blame. They feel shame and they blame. This is exactly what happens when sin takes over in our lives. She said, I put my slave, again, Hagar, no name, I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became small to her. I became little to her. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abraham doesn't do anything. Look at next, the next verse, verse 6. Here, your slave, stop there because Hagar is actually his wife, legally now because of the custom, she's his wife. But he says, hear your slave. He is so passively kind of pulling away from the situation. Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The word mistreated is used in Exodus for the Egyptians' mistreatment and abuse of the Hebrew children. It means cruelty and abuse. This is not a pretty picture for a noble woman. Hagar lives up to her name, and she starts to run. She escapes Sarai and Abram, and she journeys for days and days. We don't know how long, and we don't know exactly where until a couple of verses later. And she has no idea she's being followed and pursued. But in verse 7, we find out who's following her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said in verse 8, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? This is the first mention in the Bible of the angel of the Lord coming to an Egyptian slave on the run. Take that in for a second. If you've ever felt marginalized and powerless and without agency, God sees you and he cares about you. The angel of the Lord is thought to be, by scholars, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That means before Jesus was born as a human baby, he appeared throughout the Old Testament in, as the angel of the Lord. In fact, when Hagar names this person and speaks to this angel later, she's going to name, I have seen God. That's what she says, I've seen God. She takes this to be an appearance of God to her. So it could be the pre-incarnate Jesus. The word found is, is this intense searching. So he's, he's really pursuing her. He's going after her. It's not that he couldn't locate her. It's, it's a word that says, I, I want you. I, I want to find you. You are an object of desire in terms of I want to find you and rescue you. The way we know she's going back home towards Egypt is where she ends up on her way to Shur. Interestingly enough, Shur means wall or enclosure. So you can say the angel waited till Hagar hit the wall. 
She's at the end of her own resources. She can't go any further. She's going back towards home, but she can't go any further. And the angel of the Lord comes at that moment, and he says for the first time her name. He calls her by name, Hagar. Where have you come from, and where are you going? This is an echo again of Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sin, God comes walking in the garden. Do you think he needs to know where they are? He can't find them? No. God knows exactly where they are. But the first question he asks in Genesis 3 is, Adam, Adam, humanity, man and woman, where are you? Where are you? Why? Because he doesn't know? No, God knows exactly what bush they're hiding behind because he can hear them sewing their fig leaves together. No, this question is to elicit a response and a relationship. This is for God to hear and to listen and to see and to begin to act. It's a question that always precedes his activity. Where are you going? Where are you? You're meant to see Genesis 3 throughout this story. And so she replies in verses, uh, the last part of 8 and verse 9, she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Her identity is very based in the ownership and the slavery power dynamic. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord says to her, this is hard and sticky, go with me. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Whoa, wait a minute. If you are listening to my voice today or at a later time, this is not telling you to go back to your abuser. I want you to know that. And I think the church leadership here would back me up on that. But for many, many, many decades, churches told people that, and mostly women, that go back into an, an abusive situation. This verse is not teaching that. You see, because when the angel of the Lord says to this powerless person who has no means to care for her child that's growing within her or herself, she's hit the wall, come at the end of her resources, the only protection she's really going to find, and for the baby to be safely born, the angel says, you need to return and be back under the protection, the authority, the protection also of your mistress, Sarai. She's going to go back changed. It's not the same Hagar that's going to go back. And she's going to be given a mission from the Lord. So she has a, a reason to go back that she doesn't even know yet. So the Lord, through the angel, tells her to go back. Here's what Carolyn Custis James writes about this. The angel's message to Hagar should never be interpreted as a reason for anyone to return to an abusive situation. The specifics of Hagar's case are unusual, and God's purposes are redemptive. Through the story, things are going to be redeemed. God gave Hagar a mission that required her to go back, and we're going to see that unwrap in these next verses. Are you with me? Everybody? Look up and say, I'm with you. Ready? One, two, three. I'm with you. There you go. All right, verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 10. The angel keeps speaking, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. What does that sound like? What he just said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now it's to an Egyptian slave woman who's not even among the covenant people, the Hebrew people. She's an Egyptian. 
And he basically says to her the same kind of covenant, the echo of that, that he just said to Abraham, his chosen guy. That's stunning. I don't think there are other, many other examples of a woman receiving that kind of promise from God. Genesis 16, 11 and 12, the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. I love how God says the obvious, you know. You, will con- you have conceived and will have a son. She's looking down going, you're right, you're right. This reminds me of what Gabriel said to Mary, only he puts it in the future. You will conceive and you will have a son and you will call his name Emmanuel meaning God with us. You have conceived, and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. El, E-L, at the end of his name is the word for God. Ishmael. It means the God who hears. That just gave me goosebumps. The God who hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. So, his name is the characteristic of the God who's hearing her right now, has heard her affliction and is answering it. He's named after this redemptive activity of God. You will name him just like the angel Gabriel said to Mary, here's the name. You'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. So like, this is so similar. Can you see it? Have you ever seen that before? I never saw that before. It's so reminiscent of what is being said in the New Testament. He said, this man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. And many people construe this to be the, the, uh, the, the nation of Israel and the Arab nations being at odds with each other, and maybe that's true. But right now what it means is a promise to Ishmael. It's a comfort. A wild donkey in Bedouin and biblical culture was a creature that was praised, not vilified. A wild donkey couldn't be tamed. A wild donkey could survive in horrible circumstances. A wild donkey was stubborn and strong. And in those desert wilderness cultures, this was the animal you wanted so he's praising his ability to live as a free man. Here's she's, the angel saying, your son, you slave girl, is going to be a free man. Can I hear an amen? Come on. God's changing the trajectory of this family. He's going to live as a free man. That his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand. That's the struggle of the nomadic life. There's robbers, there's animals, there's nature. When you're moving around from tent to tent to place to place to find water, you're always at risk. And he will settle near all of his relatives. That means, as it is today in the Middle East, the Arab nations live close to the Hebrew nation. They live in proximity, just like the angel said. And this was meant to be a blessing. Because when the Jews are walking, when the Israelites are walking in trust with their God, he called them to be a light to all the nations. 
And so having the Arabs in proximity to the Jews is meant to draw them, not kill them or repel them. This was meant to be a blessing when the Israelites are walking in faith, believing God's promise. There is animosity there on both sides. And I think this grieves the heart of God who made these promises both to Ishmael before he makes his promises to Isaac, who's coming later. It's so sad to see what God meant for good to be not good for so, so very long. Verse 13 and 14, so she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roi, for she said, in this place I have actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So she named the Lord. She is the, Hagar is the only person in the Bible to name God. That's pretty stout. That's courageous. Excuse me, angel of the Lord, can I name you? Like, <laughs> I'm going to write out your name tag. You are the God who hears me, who sees me and hears me. She names God, and God accepts it. You are El Roi. And then she said, in this place, by this well, in this wilderness, I have seen the one who calls me by name and actually sees me and listens to me. Hagar, an Egyptian slave with zero power and agency, is the first person in Scripture to meet the angel of the Lord and the only person to name God. And so she returns to Abram and Sarai. Verses 15 and 16. So Hagar gives birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. You go, Abraham. I think if Abraham lived today, he'd be playing pickleball. He would absolutely. Sure sign of old age, I've arrived, I play pickleball. But I think he'd be right on the court with me right there. Do you see that Abraham, in naming his son Ishmael, because it was the father's duty to name the child, but Hagar had to have, this proves that Hagar told him about this encounter at the well and told him that the angel said his name should be Ishmael. This is Abraham a Hebrew receiving an Egyptian girl's encounter and revelation from God to name his firstborn son. He named him Ishmael. And don't you know that every time they yelled out of the tent, Ishmael, dinner time. Ishmael, get away from that goat. Ishmael, where are you? They were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing the God who hears you every time they said his name. I believe Abram's faith was strengthened through Hagar's encounter with the angel and the birth of Ishmael. I think it was for their strengthening. Abram and Sarah were strengthened by what Hagar experienced. And this prepared them for Isaac, their physical son, who would be born 14 years still later. They have to wait another 14 years after Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael's story continues in Genesis 21. Read it later and discover how it ends. But I want to just make three quick observations. First one is Hagar's story foreshadows Israel's story. Israel isn't even a thing yet. 
It's just a group of people, a family. Hasn't even become a nation. These are just people out of Ur, the Chaldees, whom God chooses and calls Abraham out. But here's how Hagar's story foreshadows what becomes Israel. Hagar is a slave from Egypt, and the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. Hagar, an Egyptian, is enslaved and abused by the Hebrew taskmasters, Sarai and Abram. And so the Israelites were enslaved and abused by Egyptians. Hagar becomes a threat to Sarai in her pregnancy, as the Hebrews become a threat to Pharaoh as they multiplied in Egypt. The Hebrews escape from bondage in Egypt as Hagar runs away from Sarai. The Hebrews turn away from God, but he pursues them. Hagar runs to the wilderness toward Egypt, and an angel pursues her. The Hebrews receive favor, blessings, and promises made to Abraham, and Hagar receives divine favor, revelation, and comfort through God's promises. It's amazing. An outsider. Rabbinic tradition says that Hagar is the first of eight righteous non-Jewish women outside of the covenant of Abraham. Hagar's story shows us that God sees, hears, and loves beyond covenant barriers. The God of the New Testament, seen in the person of Jesus, is no different than the God of the Old Testament, seen here, seeing, pursuing, loving, redeeming, transforming, changing. Same God. Across barriers, across traditions, in unexpected ways. Next thing I notice that Hagar's story connects to mothering. I didn't say mothers, I said mothering. I'm a single woman, lifetime. I don't have children of my own, but I have many spiritual children. I'm a mother. I have mothered and I am mothering. In this room are mothers and grandmothers who have physical children and grandchildren. There are those in this room who are hearing my voice who would love to have children and cannot. Some of you have lost children. But that mothering thing is such a huge part of God's revelation of himself in the world. Do you know that Paul in the New Testament describes God as a nursing mother? Newspaper columnist Irma Bombeck wrote a famous Mother's Day column years ago called When God Created Mothers. So here's the scene. God's putting the finishing touches on the first mother, and an angel is kind of looking on and making commentary, and he thinks he's discovered a flaw. So the angel announces, there's a leak. It's not a leak, said the Lord. It's a tear. What's it for? The angel asked. It's for joy. Sadness, disappointment, pain, loneliness, and pride. You're a genius, said the angel. But the Lord looked at him with a sad face and said, I didn't put it there. Since there have been mothers, there have been tears over children. And if you, within the sound of my voice, are mothering, I think even men are mothering. If you are in anyone's life, working hard and praying for their good, and whatever is stymieing that, 
you have a prodigal child, you have a child who's walked away or they're deconstructing or whatever it is, or maybe you are that child. God sees it. He knows it. He gets it, and he's with you. Mothering people brings on tears, and those tears are blessed. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep crying. God sees everyone. In fact, the book of Psalms says he gathers all your tears in a bottle. I think mine is a vat by now. Maybe yours is too. But he gathers those precious tears. Last one. Hagar's story is a revelation of God we desperately need today. Here's the three truths we can learn about God from Hagar's story. First one, God sees you in your pain. Say that with me. God sees you in your pain. God sees you in your pain. The second one, God hears your cries of distress. Say it with me. God hears your cries of distress. And then God loves you and is near. Say it with me. God loves you and is near. Now we're going to personalize it. Say, God loves me and is near. Say it with me. God loves me and is near. Jesus brings out the God who sees and listens. He makes that God in the flesh. That's the difference between the Old and the New Testament. God puts himself in human flesh in the New Testament. And in Luke 7, there's a beautiful story. A widow has lost her only son. And Jesus is coming through the town gate with a group of people who are having a party. And she's going out at the same time ready to bury her son. And there's wailing and mourning. And Jesus stops the whole parade, both of them. And Luke 7, 13 says this. When Jesus saw her, he's the God who sees. His heart went out to her. His compassion was ignited. And he said to her, don't cry. This is our Jesus, the God who hears and sees, and rescues, and comes near. Hagar encountered God in her wilderness flight. She named the only one who saw her distress, who pursued her and listened to her story. God's love worked blessing, and his nearness was for the good of Hagar and her unborn baby. And I'll leave you with Psalm 73, 28. But as for me... It is good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all of his deeds. My prayer is that you make the sovereign Lord your refuge, because God's nearness is for your good. Father, thank you for this word of God from Gen Genesis chapter 16. Pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would make real to them the words of Scripture, that you are near and you are a God who can be trusted to see, to pursue, to love, to listen, and to redeem. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.